Cabrera, and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the philosophical insights behind some of my favorite books, films, and works of art, something I do often from the front of my high school classroom. While many of the works I find myself discussing in and out of my class aren't strictly philosophical, my own education in intellectual curiosity has been deeply enriched by the influence of continental philosophy. The hope is that this intellectual journey that begins here today will illuminate some of the pearls of wisdom that fill in the details of the art in a formal sense, but also in cultural, social interactions, and just on our normal life routines. Without further ado, let's jump into our first exposure, a great little bottle episode of a sci-fi film directed by Duncan Jones called Moon, starring one of my favorites, Sam Rockwell, as astronaut Sam Bell, and featuring the voice of Kevin Spacey as a strangely benevolent robot named Gertie. A quick synopsis. Ahead in the not-too-distant future, humanity has solved Earth's environmental issues through a clean energy initiative that has man-harvesting energy stored in rocks on the dark side of the moon. And while there might be some reference there to the Pink Floyd album, the bulk of the film takes place in a little isolated compound which is manned by one man, Sam Bell, whose sole interaction with the outside world comes from empathetically programmed Gertie, and some pre-recorded messages from his bosses, his wife, and eventually his daughter. His mission calls for three years of this isolated state, in which his job is simply to keep the mining operations running. In the intervals, he fills his time with teaching himself how to play ping pong, alone, carving replicas of his own town on Earth, jump rope, and other indoor exercises, and recording his own messages to send back to his Earth counterparts. His three-year mission is just about long enough to get a good, comfortable routine of efficiency, but just short enough to not lose too much in personal and work morale. And so it goes. At the beginning of the movie, Sam Bell is two weeks from the end of his service with the promise of returning home to Earth, when he starts to show some interesting signs of mania, but he also recognizes some odd inconsistencies, which is so perceived mania almost makes you miss. Long-ranged comms are down, and so Sam, Sam cannot receive any live feeds, just pre-recorded messages based on his own pre-recorded messages. And when the first one shown of his wife, Tess, and daughter, Eve, tells him that her birthday is coming up, he pauses for a moment. If you blink here, you miss it. It's that fleeting of a realization. But it's not the only hint to come. Moving ahead, one of the mining machines malfunctions. Uh, I find it interesting that they're all named after the four Gospels of the Bible. So Sam goes out there to fix it. Boom, crash, dark. It's here that things get interesting. Sam wakes up in the infirmary, Gertie helps him catch up to speed, but something is definitely different. Sam seems to be in much better health than when he crashed, which I guess the infirmary could have solved, but even Sam recognizes that something's weird. Sam overhears Gertie having a live conversation, which is hard to hear, but the audience gets glimpses of some of the phrasing, quote, the new Sam is in good working order, quote, we have two working harvesters, and quote, going to have to ramp up production of Mark and John, but the mere fact that a live conversation is possible, despite Sam's understanding that all these pre-recorded messages have been alluding to the fact that they're down, should be a sounding alarm. This malfunction in the timeline sends new Sam into a frenzied search for answers that eventually leads him to finding original Sam at the crash site. The rest of the movie explores Sam wrestling with himself, figuratively and literally, and the recognition of their clonehood, and the search for the truth allows for the base and the nefarious operations for clean energy harvesting on the moon to be questioned. There are a few really important philosophical views that can illuminate interesting things about this story, 
from the recognition of truth in a somewhat objective sense, as well as from the subjective person of each Sam individually, and then of course from their collective interactions as well. I'll start with probably the most obvious philosophical metaphor that can be applied here, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Plato's Allegory comes from Book 7 of his masterwork, Politeia, or more commonly known as the Republic, which was completed around 360 BC. Like most of Plato's dialogues, Politeia features Socrates as the vehicle for inquiry as he demonstrates the aptly named Socratic method. In a larger work, Socrates and his followers seek to define justice through the, quote, just soul. To give a concrete picture of sorts to the abstract concept, Socrates begins by building a weird and often dehumanizing society to get at the ordering of the self, in which appetite and spirit are balanced and moderated through a proper use of fully developed capacity to reason. He constantly has to say to his interlocutors, hey, don't get caught up in the image, which they do anyway. So when he tries to explain the way in which the intellect and wisdom develop in an abstract sense in the divided line that concludes Book 6, Socrates begrudgingly realizes that everything has gone over the heads of his listeners, in which case he has to back up and retell the whole thing over again using visuals, risking again their getting caught up in the images, which of course they do, but that's besides the point. In probably one of the most famous images of philosophy, Socrates describes a bunch of prisoners chained and bound in an underground cave, forced to stare at shadows moving upon a cave wall that's projected by various moving things in front of a fire that sits up and behind them in the cave. None of the prisoners can see any of this. Because they can't move, they can't turn their heads, they can't investigate, since childhood, the prisoners come to realize reality as the limitations of their field of vision. Here, they make stories and games of the situation, having limited concepts of the world, and maybe more interestingly and often overlooked, incredibly limited concepts of self. You have to imagine that any sound being heard in this perspective, including their own voices, is what's projected onto what they're seeing. They have limited physical capabilities, and so it would be difficult to even assess themselves in terms of their body, in which case the word I really doesn't have any contingencies. It's an empty concept. Eventually, some other enters the cave, unchains our prisoners, and forces them to look around. The light of the fire pains and dazzles, and the prisoners have no language or experience to make any sense whatsoever of what they're being compelled to see. Out of comfort of the familiar, our prisoner sits back down. But in what I can only liken to Kierkegaard's demonic, the prisoner will eventually, even if suppressed, know there is more going on behind them. As a result of his curiosity, he investigates all the causal relationships of his prior state and can recognize the importance of the fire and what it serves for providing the capacity for knowledge of what's going on around him. The same movement occurs again exponentially when the prisoner is then dragged by the other out of the cave, forced to recognize the limitations of both his prior states, and comes to recognize the world in full both at night and in day, and the substantially more powerful importance of the sun, which, like the fire in the cave, provides the foundation for all potentiality of the understanding. Here, Socrates describes the philosopher king, the image of his highest part of the soul, reason, which must investigate all the material and conceptual causality of the world and get to its source, the sun, which he uses to represent his important concept, the good. 
itself not an object of knowledge, but that which, as he describes, yokes together the ability of the understanding, which man already inherently is endowed with, this is what he calls the divine spark, and things which are available to understanding, or in other words, the entire objective world. The good is often the aim of his dialogues, and this can also be found in other places, Phaedrus, Philebus, and my personal favorite of the dialogues, Theotetus. So back to Moon, Sam Bell's personal journey mimics many of the same features of this allegory. In the beginning, Sam stares metaphorically at cave walls as his situation seems to be a standardized process. He is the original Sam Bell. He's been on Earth before. He's been in service for almost three years. He's going home in two weeks. The video from his wife and his daughter from his bosses are authentic. Comms are, in fact, down. Because his situation is programmed to consistently follow the same standard, and there should be no substantial differences, no stable backdrop upon which to question his current movement, there is no reason to question what is. As a result, he lives with normal expectations. It isn't until the inconsistencies and ultimately the giant one that is two Sams at once that there's any reason at all to suspect anything. Eventually, we see Sam 2 become the other for Sam 1. Sam 2, who knows almost immediately in his three-year service that he's a clone, where there is still some possibility that Sam 1 is Sam Prime, so to speak, the original, real, non-cloned Sam. Yet, because of the system's failure to recognize that Sam 1 is not dead and outside in the accident, the replaying of all the same videos, the newly recorded videos aimed at Sam 2, it becomes pretty clear that these memories and knowledge that's dropped on them both suggests that neither Sam 1 nor Sam 2 are actually original Sam, but that we're pretty cl clearly into this cloning system. Later on, Sam 1 gets outside the comm jammers, calls home to find out that several years have gone by, far more than three, and that his wife Tess has tragically died and his daughter Eve is already 15. And probably more disturbing, he hears the voice of real Sam Bell in the background. To get a sense of time, he further accesses videos that show he's somewhere along the lines of year 15, in which case he's likely to be Sam 5 or 6 at this point, which deals him a pretty critical blow. Our sympathies lie with both Sam 1 and Sam 2 in this process, but our focus is on the development of Sam 1 more specifically. Sam 2 feels like a clone to us. He's new and fresh, he's just been awakened, he's angry and impulsive, and yet is the wise one in the situation because he hasn't spent the last three years being chained in a cave. Sam 1, like the prisoners in Plato's cave, is like us in the sense that we are often mired in our own routine day-to-days and don't get dealt critical existential crises like this one very often, and when they do, they rock the world and the deeper and longer we're married to our routines. Sam 2's presence forces him to turn around, to see behind the reality of the shadows of this existence, and to contend with them, and you see the stages of grief attached to the process. Like the cave dwellers of Plato's allegory, he sits back down, in denial of his clonehood. He gets angry as well, he resigns, and eventually comes to accept it, and can be comforted and happier with the reality. Sam 2 also goes through this process, albeit much faster, and has more time to do something with it, as he has yet to start the process of decomposition that seems kind of consistently happening for each of the clones at each of the three years. You see this happen in years 7, 9, and 12 as Sam goes through some of the excess videos. 
And you get something a la the circumstances explored in the movie Blade Runner, which is based on Philip K. Dick's novel, Do Andrews Deem of Electric Sheep. Another option in all of this is to view Gertie as the other, or as Kierkegaard later terms it, the Socratic teacher, for Sam. It makes perfect sense in this situation why Gertie, who I think we almost always assume kind of a nefarious villain of the story by the end of it, kind of like the autopilot program of Pixar's film Wally, e uh, why he would be programmed to be empathetic and helpful. You've got a guy on the moon sacrificing three years of his life in human isolation for a job that's not super taxing physically, but certainly taxing mentally. He has to be kept mentally keen and happy enough to stay motivated, and we're all social, social creatures. He's going to spend a significant chunk of time with this robot. Might as well make him humanoid enough at least to be engaging and not give Sam reason to suspect any ulterior motive. Yet I think Gertie's program is also a weakness. Gertie's goal is to keep Sam happy, safe, and helping him is very exploitable. Although to the credit of the creators of this morally suspect system, it's perfect so long as no inconsistencies occur. And also to their credit, there haven't been any in the first 15 years, and even this is kind of a fluke situation. Gertie is responsible for giving Sam later on the rundown, the physical and mental tests which look for genetic abnormalities that result from kind of this duplication process, the edited and manipulated memories of the original Sam Bell, all the recorded messages from Earth, the lack of a live feed. Could you imagine, though, the alternative, a Gertie that is all system and no sympathy, harsh and lonely? And yet there are even broader questions that arise from the background of this scenario. While our attention is focused on what this means for these versions of Sam, for Sam Prime, for his family, and for the unique learning situation that is this moment of a bottle episode movie, there are some allusions to important broader social decisions worthy of discussing in today's worlds that we're experiencing in real time. I have to back up and preface for a moment that I am actually going to bring up the trolley problem here for a moment. I also have to admit that while I have always hated talking about the trolley problem in my classroom because of its outlandishly and unrealistic hypothetical tendency, I am starting to realize how much the type of consideration of sacrifice of others, and more specifically the virtue versus utility argument of human value, has become almost central to any policy discussion of our globalized world. Not only must we have this conversation of the trolley problem almost literally with programming safety features for self-driving cars, which seems eminently on the horizon, but even more tangentially in so many other ethical discussions that come forward in the environmental sphere. To reference it here in this discussion of the environmental concerns of Moon almost feels right, and to that I say, ew. But little is said in the movie in any straightforward manner about the company or the process or reasoning behind this little mission to the moon. We do not know the original real Sam and if he spent any time there himself, or if he was trained in some simulation in order to harvest his skills in the form of memories later implanted into his clones. We do not know if the recordings made by the company before or by his wife are authentic or scripted. But we can at least speculate to some degree as to why this method was chosen. Presumably, travel from Earth to the Moon is still difficult and expensive. Training one person, 
way cheaper, way more consistent and more reliable than training several different individuals, which would require also some overlapping time on the moon and a slow in productivity in the intervals of the transition between the two persons service. Three years is probably the sweet spot for this as well. Again, it's long enough to become efficient, but short enough to not lose hope in returning. But, like the trolley problem, which asks us to discuss the ethicality in various variations of human sacrifice, be it our concern for one worker versus five, or the sacrifice of someone close to us versus the lives of strangers, we have to question whether clean energy, the consistently comfortable lives of many on Earth, is worth sacrificing one individual in isolation on the dark side of the moon. And, to take it even further, is it worth the ethical sacrifice of human cloning? In a perfect situation, the people on Earth in the story have no idea this is even happening. They know that they're receiving clean energy and that one brave soul is making a high sacrifice to bring it to them. But I imagine this is all with the assumption that the person up there has done so voluntarily. These clones, while they think they are the original Sam Bell, are working under serious false pretense. The major one, that they are in fact Sam Bell, the only Sam Bell, the other that they'll get to go home, which of course Sam 1 shows us is not the case. The escape pod simply vaporizes them from existence. So in the course of three years, they're clones, not real in maybe the metaphysical sense of the word, and they will cease to exist or even be traceable at the end of their term. Sam 2, clearly unhappy with this arrangement, does not simply just leave the compound and everything the way it was before. Before getting into the escape pod and before he wipes Gertie's memory, which Gertie is the one that suggests doing that in order to save Sam's from being found out, and going ahead and awakening another clone of Sam Bell, Sam too breaks the comm jammer which allows for live feed so that no future clone could possibly be left inside the cave. So here he becomes kind of the Socratic teacher of all Socratic teachers. The bonds are broken, the chains no more, because, as Sam Tu says, quote, We're people. We're not programmed, understand? At the end of the film, we hear snippets of news blurbs in which Sam Tu, once on Earth, has come forward as the clone of Sam Bell, bringing into question the ethicality of the energy company's decisions. And yet, even then... You have that last blurb of doubt to show that even when presented with concrete evidence, i.e. an actual clone of a person, there will always be skeptics who will sit back down and stare at cave walls as a continuance of their own willful ignorance. So as a result of all this, we have to ask ourselves how comfortable we are in the sacrifice of others for the sake of our own health and comfort. Like Sam 1 and Sam 2, we have ethical decisions to make on the basis of knowledge. We can decide if we want to view the issue of forcing unsuspected clones, who would have to be viewed as people here from kind of a humanistic standpoint, with forced labor under false pretenses, slave laborers involuntarily sacrificed for the sake of our environment and the health and well-being of our planet and ourselves. And I recognize that's a pretty tall order, as in inherently wrong. Or we can view it from the sake of utility and believe that the sacrifice of one on the track saves countless others and our planet to boot. While Moon shows us a futuristic and hopefully extreme case of this kind of thing, the distance of the situation, the metaphysical distance of clones, may actually do a disservice to this notion. There are plenty of instances today where we sacrifice the health and well-being of others for our own sake. 
Those who are vegetarian and vegan on principle answer this question for the sake of animals. While looking no further than common practices of companies around the world who exploit children and the poor for cheap labor simply to get us the latest material item for a low cost, will bring us to the same question. So now that we're aware of the truth behind our own shadows, what will we do? Will we sit back down in the cave and stare at the wall and hope that the truth disappears behind us? Or will we make choices that maybe sacrifice a little of our own comforts for the sake of others? Let's hope we do a little more exploring of the truth and fill in the details in order to make our own rational and wise decisions. Thanks for listening to this very first episode. You can join the philosophical journey here by subscribing and sharing, fill in the details. Resources for today's episodes, including some of the texts in discussion today, can be found on the show notes page for this episode. I'll see you next week when we'll start a series of discussions of the philosophies behind the human zoology that is my absolute favorite book, Plain Counterpoint by Aldous Huxley. I'm Stacy Cabrera, and this is Spill in the Details.